Hello my lovelies and welcome back to another episode of Primed for Crime. I'm your host Liv and I'm very excited to have you here and hope you enjoy today's case. And apologies for no episodes last week, I was actually on holiday but I'm back now, got back yesterday and I'm a bit tired but I've got some great things lined up for you guys and not forgetting all the Halloween specials. I'm really looking forward to sharing them with you and I really hope that you're looking forward to it too. But today I'm going to be talking about a woman named Catherine Knight. She is an Australian murderer and the first woman in the country's history to be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole after she killed her partner and honestly you will not believe what she did. It is truly horrific and I've known about the case before but didn't really quite know how bad it was. But before we get into the case, I just want to state that everything I talk about is information I found online and I mean no disrespect to anybody involved or mentioned. And today's episode involves mention of sexual abuse, animal cruelty, suicide and just some pretty gruesome scenes. So if this is something that you're not comfortable listening to at the moment, then please feel free to click out of this podcast. So, let's begin. This is the murderer, Catherine Knight. So before we get on to the actual crime that landed um, Catherine in jail, I thought it was kind of important to go back right to the beginning to kind of give you a better understanding of Catherine's life, how she was raised, what things happened in her childhood and other things that she did. You know, there are quite a few red flags within her life story, should we say. So I just wanted to give you a full, bigger understanding of this story. So we're going right back to the beginning. Um, So Catherine... She was born and raised in quite an unconventional and, you might say, dysfunctional family environment. So her mother, Barbara, had been married to a man named Jack Rowan. Rowan, And so she lived with him in a small town in Aberdeen, um, New South Wales. So her parents had four sons before Barbara began an adulterous relationship with a man named Ken Knight. And he was actually a friend and co-worker of her husband. So, not brilliant. (laughs) And because of this, there was quite a lot of local backlash. You know, it's quite a small town. Everybody would have found out. And this eventually forced Barbara and Ken to move to a place called Marie. I think it's Marie. However, none of her four sons decided to go with her. So the two eldest boys continued to live with their father whilst the two younger sons were sent to Sydney to be raised by an aunt. So Barbara had four more children with Ken, including twin girls born in 1955, and Catherine was one of these twin daughters. So in 1959, when Knight was four, Jack um, had died, and his two older boys who had been living with him moved in with Barbara, who was their mother, and Ken. So Ken, it's safe to say he wasn't a very nice man. He was a violent alcoholic who would sadly rape Barbara up to 10 times a day. 
And Barbara, in turn, often told her daughters intimate details of her sex life and how much she hated sex and how much she hated men. And later, when Catherine complained to her mother that one of her partners wanted her to take part in a sex act that she did not want to perform, Barbara told her to, quote, put up with it and stop complaining, end quote. Which is something that, I mean, for her to go to her own mother, she would have wanted some safety, some advice, some help, not just get on with it that no child or you know nobody should have to go through anything like that and same with this Catherine claims that she was frequently sexually assaulted by several members of her family um but not by her father and she said that this continued until she was aged 11 you know nobody no child nobody should have to go through something like that And although there were doubts about the details, psychiatrists do accept her claims and the events have been largely confirmed by other members of the family. So Barbara's great-grandmother was an indigenous Australian from the Maori area who had married an Irishman and Barbara was very proud of this fact and identified as Aboriginal. And this was kept a family secret as there was considerable racism in the area at that time. And Barbara's descent was a source of tension for the children. Um, So it was kind of kept on the down low in a sense, which again, it shouldn't have to be. So Catherine, apart from her twin sister, the only person that she was close to was her uncle, Oscar Knight. And he was actually a champion horseman However, in 1969, he sadly committed suicide, which left Catherine absolutely devastated, as it would. And she continues to maintain that his ghost visits her, which, you know, that's, you know, I I do kind of believe in stuff like that. And that is kind of nice in a way. Um, But yeah, she was left absolutely devastated. The only person that she was close to has sadly died. And now she feels like she's just left with nobody. Um, But later that year, the family decided to move back to Aberdeen and Catherine started to attend school. So she attended a school, um, it was, God, I can't pronounce it, Musselbrook? Muswellbrook High School and she became kind of an outcast at this point. She was kind of a loner in a sense. She didn't really have a lot of friends but she is remembered by classmates as a huge bully. A huge bully who stood over smaller children. She just wasn't seen as a very nice person and it's said that she assaulted at least one boy at school with a weapon and was once injured by a teacher who subsequently found to have acted in self-defence. But by contrast, when she wasn't in a rage, Catherine was a model student and often earned rewards for her good behaviour. However, she decided to leave school at the age of 15 without having learned to read or write. And she got a job as a cutter in a clothing factory, but 12 months later, she left to start what she referred to as her dream job. And this was cutting up offal at the local abattoir. And there she was quickly promoted to boning and was given her own set of butcher's knives. And these butcher's knives, 
she she would hang these knives above her bed so that they would quote always be handy if I needed them end quote I mean first little bit of a red flag maybe I mean I guess you can do whatever you want in your own home like it wasn't really hurting anybody but a little bit weird and this is a habit that she continued everywhere that she lived um yeah bit of a red flag but I guess some people just do stuff like that whatever in 1973, this is when Catherine Knight meets her co-worker, David Stanford Kellett. Now, Kellett was a heavy drinker, and this seemed to have stemmed from two traumatic incidents from his previous railway job in Coffs Harbour. The first was when his best friend was killed in front of him in a shunting accident, and later when he rescued injured occupants of a school bus in Kempsey which had been struck by a train and it killed six children. So obviously very traumatic times and so he eventually lost the job due to deteriorating behaviour and performance but he soon got work at the nearby Aberdeen Abattoir and became close friends with Knight's brother. And often, if Kellett got into a fight, Catherine would step in and back him up with her fist like she was ready to fight anybody that had a problem with him. And it wasn't the first time that Knight was known to do stuff like this. I mean, when she was back in Aberdeen, she was well known for physically threatening anybody who upset her. Like, violence was kind of the only option in her case. So this friendship quickly turned to a relationship and just a year later Knight married Kellett at her request and the couple arrived at the service on her motorbike with a very intoxicated Kellett and as soon as they arrived Knight's mother Barbara pulled Kellett aside and gave him some quite strange advice. She said quote, you better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her, she'll fucking kill you, end quote. And that was her own mother saying that. If I heard that on my wedding day, I would absolutely run to the hills. I would be gone. Um, But he went through with it, he married her. And sure enough, on their wedding night, she tried to strangle him. She tried to strangle him on their wedding night, but she later explained that it's because he fell asleep after only having sex with her three times that night. So, as we can see, there's a bit of a pattern starting. The marriage proved particularly violent, and on one occasion, a heavily pregnant knight burned all of Kellett's clothing and shoes before hitting him across the head with a frying pan. And why did she do this? Simply because he had arrived home late from a darts competition after reaching the finals. I mean, don't get me wrong, it is annoying when your partner comes home later than they said they would. It is annoying, but a normal person would not resort to burning all their stuff and smacking him across the back of the head with a frying pan not normal so obviously he's in fear for his life at this point and he he managed to flee the house before collapsing in a neighbor's house and was treated for a severely fractured skull 
So obviously the police wanted to charge Knight with this, but she changed her behaviour and talked him into dropping all the charges, so she wasn't even charged for this assault. In May 1976, shortly after the birth of their first child, Melissa Ann, Kellett decided to leave Knight for another woman and moved all the way to Queensland. I think he was just unable to cope with all the abuse that Catherine was throwing at him. And the next day, Catherine was seen pushing her new baby in a pram down the main street. But she was violently throwing the pram around, like side to side, and she was admitted to St Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth, where she was diagnosed with postnatal depression. And she spent several weeks recovering, and everyone thought that it would be okay. However, this is when things start to get even crazier. After being released, Knight placed two-month-old Melissa on a railway line, shortly before the train was due. I mean, God, that is just wild. Who, who would do that to their own daughter? You know, who would put their child at such risk? So, she then stole an axe and went down into town and just threatened to kill several people. Um, so, she was clearly on a mad one. And there was a man in the district known as Old Ted who was actually foraging near the railway line and thankfully he found and rescued Melissa by all accounts only minutes before the train passed. So obviously Knight was arrested and taken again to St Elmo's Hospital but apparently she miraculously recovered almost immediately and signed herself out the following day. And just a few days later, Knight slashed the face of a woman with one of her knives and demanded that she drive her to Queensland so she could find Kellett. So the woman actually escaped after they stopped at a service station, but by the time police had arrived, Knight had taken a young boy hostage and was threatening him with her knife. She was thankfully disarmed when police attacked her with brooms and she was admitted to Morissette Psychiatric Hospital. So Knight had told the nurses that she intended to kill the mechanic at the service station because she, he had repaired Kellett's car, which allowed him to leave, and then kill both her husband and his mother when she arrived in Queensland. So when the police informed Kellett of the incident, he left his girlfriend and moved to Aberdeen with his mother to support Catherine. You know, there's obviously something not right with her at this moment so he wanted to make sure that he could support her and be there for her. So when Knight was released on 9th of August 1976 she was released into the care of her mother-in-law and Kellett and moved to Ipswich a city west of Brisbane where she started working at the Dinmar Meatworks. So we're now skipping forward about four years, so 6th of March 1980, and they brought another daughter into this world named Natasha Marie, and everything seemed okay at this point, the violence seemed to have calmed down or even gone, I'm not quite sure, couldn't find much about it. However, in 1984, again, four years after this second daughter was born, Knight left Kellett and moved first to her parents' house in Aberdeen and then to a rented house in nearby Muswellbrook. Muswellbrook? It's that name again. And although she returned to work at the abattoir, she injured her back the following year and went on to a disability pension. 
and since she no longer needed to rent accommodation close to her work, the government gave her a housing commission residence in Aberdeen. And this is when Knight met 38-year-old minor David Saunders in 1986. And just a few months later, she moved in with her and her daughters, although he kept his old apartment in Scone. And this kind of, again, soon turned into another dysfunctional relationship. Catherine soon became really jealous regarding what he did, where he was, when she was not around and would often throw him out of the house and he would move back into his apartment and then she'd come running back and begging him to return. So she was almost playing mind games with him. And as you've probably already worked out, this is when the violence properly starts again. So in May 1987, she... This is awful. She cut the throat of his two-month-old dingo puppy in front of him for no reason, you know, just as an example of what would happen if he ever had an affair. And again, this frying pan, she went and knocked him unconscious. Who does that? So, yeah, so she does this and a year later, June 1988, she gave birth to a third daughter named Sarah, which prompted Saunders to put a deposit on a house and Knight paid it off with the deposit when her workers' compensation came through a year later. So, with a new house, uh, Knight decided to decorate, you know, make it more homely, maybe some nice candles, flowers, comfy pillows. Uh, No, in fact, Knight decorated the house throughout with animal skins, skulls, horns, rusty animal traps, leather jackets, old boots, machetes, rakes, pitchfork, you name it. There was no space, including the ceilings that was left uncovered. Yeah, so lovely and homely. So Catherine and Saunders got into an argument one night and she hit Saunders in the face with an iron before stabbing him in the abdomen with a pair of scissors. I mean, luckily he survived and decided to move back to Scone, but when he later returned home to Aberdeen, he found that she had cut up all of his clothes. So at this point, he was like, okay, I'm I'm done. I can't keep doing this. He was pretty scared for his life. So he took a long service leave and went into hiding, basically, just hoping to just get away from her. And... As you can imagine, this made Knight so angry. She desperately tried to find him, but no one admitted to knowing his whereabouts. And several months later, Saunders returned just to see his daughters and found out that Catherine had gone to the police and unjustly told them that she was afraid of him. They issued her an apprehended violence order, an AVO, against him. So he was pretty pissed off, as you would be. In 1991, Knight became pregnant by 43-year-old former abattoir co-worker John Chillingworth and gave birth the following year to a boy that they named Eric. And their relationship lasted about three years before she left him for a man that she had been having an affair with for some time. And this man would be John Charles Thomas Price, And he was born 4th of April 1955 and was the father of three children when Knight began the affair with him. 
He was known as a great guy. Everybody who knew him liked him and his own marriage had ended in 1988. So whilst his two-year-old daughter had remained living with his former wife, the two older children lived with him. And Price was well aware of Catherine's violent reputation as she moved into his house in 1995. But his children liked her and he was making a lot of money working in the local mines. And apart from some violent arguments at first, everything was as good as it could be in his eyes. However, you guessed it, three years later, in 1998, Knight and Price were fighting over the fact that he didn't want to marry her, and obviously this made her so mad and she wanted revenge. So in retaliation, she videotaped items that he had allegedly stolen from work and sent the tape to his boss, and although the items were just out-of-date medical kits that he'd scavenged from the company rubbish bin, Price was fired from this job and he'd held this job for 17 years, he had been there a long time. So that same day he kicked her out and she returned to her own home whilst news of what she had done spread throughout the town. And a few months later Price restarted the relationship although he now refused to allow her to move in with him. He was like no, no thank you. So the fighting became even more frequent and most of his friends would no longer have anything to do with him whilst they remained together. In February 2000, a series of assaults on Price came to light, with Knight actually stabbing him in the chest. Finally, fed up, he kicked her out of his house and decided he needed to take this further. So on the 29th of February, he stopped at the Scone Magistrate's Court on his way to work and took out a restraining order in an attempt to keep her away from both himself and his children. And that afternoon, Price told his co-workers that if he did not come to work the next day, it would be because Knight had murdered him. And despite their pleas that Price should not return home, he stated that he was afraid Knight would kill his children if he didn't return. And that is just a terrible thought to have. That must that must have been so terrifying to think, well, it's even me or the children. You know, if if I don't come in tomorrow, I'm dead. Who that I could not even imagine the feeling of what emotions must have been running through his mind. So Price did arrive home that night to find Catherine, although she wasn't there herself, um, he found that he'd sent the children away for a sleepover at a friend's house. So he spent the evening with his neighbours before returning home and going to bed at about 11pm. So earlier that day, Catherine had bought some new black lingerie and had videotaped all of her children whilst making comments which kind of have been interpreted as kind of a, a will, like she'd videotaped a will in a sense. And she later arrived at Price's house whilst he was sleeping sat and watched television for a few minutes before having a shower and then she woke up Price, they had sex and then fell asleep. At 6am the next morning, a neighbour became concerned that Price's car was still in the driveway and when he didn't return to work, his employer sent a worker to see what was wrong. Both the neighbour and the worker tried knocking on Price's bedroom window to wake him up but they alerted police after noticing blood 
on the front door. Bit of a big warning sign. So they broke down the back door and police found Price's body with Knight in a bit of a comatose from... She'd taken a lot of pills, basically. So it was found that she had stabbed Price with a butcher's knife whilst he was sleeping and according to the blood evidence, he had woken up and tried to turn on the light before attempting to escape whilst Knight chased him through the house. And he'd actually managed to open the front door and get outside but he either stumbled back inside or was dragged back into the hallway where he finally and sadly died after bleeding out. Like, he he tried so hard to get out of there. He fought for his life, but she just must have been so kind of determined, in a sense, that this is what she was going to do, and she was going to do it whether he liked it or not. So later that night, um, Catherine had gone to Aberdeen and withdrew £1,000 from Price's account at an ATM. So there was an autopsy conducted on Price's body and it revealed that he had been stabbed at least 37 times in both the front of his front of his body and the back with many of the wounds extending into vital organs. And okay, this next bit, this is where my warning is. This next part is pretty gruesome and honestly it makes me a little bit sick just reading it. Okay, so here we go. Several hours after Price had died, Catherine Knight had actually skinned him and hung the skin from a meat hook on the architrave of the door to the lounge room. Justice O'Keefe said that, quote, This was carried out with considerable expertise and obviously steady hand, so that his skin was removed as to form one pelt. It was so expertly done that after the post-mortem examination, the skin was able to be re-sewn onto Mr Price's body in a way which indicated a clear and appropriate, albeit grisly, mythology. End quote. She then decapitated Price and cooked parts of his body, serving up the meat with a baked potato, pumpkin, beetroot, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash and gravy in two settings at the dinner table along with a note beside each plate and these pieces of paper had the names of the names of Price's children on it. So long story short, she was preparing to serve his body parts to his own children. What an absolutely vile woman. There was a third meal that was thrown on the back lawn for unknown reasons, but it speculated that Knight had attempted to eat it, but she couldn't. This um, this has been put forward in support of her claims that she has no memory of the crime. And Price's head was found in a pot of vegetables, and the pot was still warm, estimated to be about... 40 to 50 degrees celsius which indicates that the cooking had taken place in the early morning some time later knight arranged the body with the left arm draped over an empty 1.25 liter soft drink bottle with the legs crossed and this was claimed in court to be an act of defilement demonstrating knight's contempt for price Knight had left a handwritten note on top of a photograph of Price which was bloodstained and covered with small pieces of flesh and it read, 
and this it wasn't kind of written grammatically correct so I'm just gonna say it how it should be so quote time you got back Jonathan for raping my daughter you too Beck for Ross for little John now play with little John's dick John Price end quote so Beck is Price's daughter and little John is his son so Knight's um well the accusations in the note were found to be kind of groundless like there was no actual indication that any of that was true so Knight's initial offer to plead guilty to manslaughter was rejected and she was arraigned on 2nd of March 2001 on the charge of murdering Price to which she entered a plea of not guilty a trial was initially fixed for the 23rd of July 2001 but it was adjourned due to her counsel's illness and it was refixed for the 15th of October the same year. When the trial commenced, Justice Barry O'Keefe offered the 60 jury prospects the option of being excused due to the nature of the photographic evidence and five of these accepted. When the witness list was read out to the prospects, several more also dropped out after which the jury was empanelled. Knight's attorneys then spoke to the judge who adjourned the following day. Um, the next morning, Knight changed her plea to guilty and the jury was dismissed. It was then made public that Justice O'Keefe had been advised of the plea change the day before. He had adjourned the trial and then ordered a psychiatric assessment overnight to determine if Knight understood the consequences of a guilty plea and was fit to make such a plea. And Knight's legal team had planned to defend Knight by claiming amnesia and disassociation, a claim that was supported by most psychiatrists, although they did consider her to be sane. Two psychiatrists concluded that Knight suffered from BPD, which is borderline personality disorder. There's no reason that's ever been given for the guilty plea, despite giving it. Knight still refused to accept responsibility for her actions. And at the sentencing hearing, Knight's lawyers requested that she be excused to avoid hearing some of the facts but the application was refused, so she'd have to sit there and listen to everything. And when Timothy Lyons took the stand and described the skinning and decapitation, Knight became hysterical and actually had to be sedated. On the 8th of November, Justice O'Keefe pointed out the nature of the crime and Knight's lack of remorse required a severe penalty. He sentenced her to life imprisonment and refused to fix a non-parole period and ordered that her papers be marked, quote, never to be released, end quote. And the first time that this has been imposed on a woman in Australian history, she is the first ever, and that just shows how terrible her crimes were. In June 2006, Knight appealed the life sentence, claiming that a penalty of life in prison without the possibility of parole was too severe for the killing. Um, I don't think so, Catherine. Justices um, Peter 
McClellan, McClellan, Michael Adams and Megan Latham dismissed the appeal in the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal in September with Justice McClellan, sorry, Justice McClellan writing in his judgment, quote, this was an appalling crime almost beyond contemplation in a civilised society, end quote. Sorry about that. So Knight is still at Silverwater Women's Correctional Centre in New South Wales, where she will be held until her very final days. And without a shadow of a doubt, everybody who was involved in this case will never be the same again. I mean, there's police officers who had the misfortune of being the first on scene, and they have complained that years after this, they are still being affected by the horrors they saw. And one officer injured years of therapy to try and wipe the visions from his mind. Detective Bob Wells, who was called to the crime scene, said, quote, It's an image that I'm still trying to get to grips with today, end quote. It's just an absolutely devastating case for so many people and I know it's definitely affected me so I can't even imagine how it's affected everybody else and my heart really does go out to all friends and family involved in this case. And that does conclude today's episode so thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed and hope to have you back for another Prime for Crime episode. But if you have been affected in any way, shape or form by this episode, I have linked some websites in the show notes to try and help you with whatever emotions you may be having at this time. But in the meantime, if you are still craving for some more true crime cases, you can head over to my Prime for Crime TikTok where I post small snippets of cases daily. It's nice to interact with you all, see what you like and see what you're not and any requests for any cases I'm always open to. So please be vigilant, please stay safe everybody and I will hopefully see you back for another episode next week. So see you later.